Welcome to Appearance Matters, the podcast, the appearance psychology podcast brought to you by the Centre for Appearance Research, a world-leading research centre based at the University of the West of England in Bristol, investigating everything related to the psychology of how we look. I'm Nadia. And I'm Jade. And on this month's episode, we're going to be talking about appearance and the law. We are indeed. And we're going to be hearing from Dr. Hannah Saunders from Cambridge University about how the UK equality law applies to visible difference. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this episode for ages now. And I think it's just such an interesting topic and overlap. Agreed. You're going to love this conversation with Hannah Jade. I'm still thinking about it and I'm so excited for people to listen. It's a little different from a lot of our episodes because of the legal focus. But for me, it was a really expanding my thinking kind of episode. But before we get too stuck in, we have two very important announcements. One, cue drum roll. Fanfare. I think we need a fanfare, actually, not a drum roll. A fanfare. Jade has submitted her PhD thesis. Whoop, whoop, whoop. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thanks for the drum roll, fanfare, everything, all of that. <laughs> well, it deserves everything and more. I'm so proud of you. It's such a big deal. And I was thinking about this the other day. Doing an 8,000 word PhD thesis when you're on a stipend rather than a salary, even if it's something that you love, is brutal. It's a brutal experience. So just trying to factor in a global pandemic into the mix. How you did it, Jade, I could not. So huge kudos to you and anyone listening who's in a similar position or currently in the thick of a PhD, because right now, wow, it's a lot. Honestly, thank you, Nadia. And it's great to have you as a friend, as well as other PhD Zoo members that we've had to you know, go through the experience all together. And when you say these things, it was even like I was taking a big deep breath myself just to be like, (laughs) I'm here, we're here, we did this. (laughs) You did it, you've made it, you've come through the other side, it's submitted, you have a bit of freedom. It's it's big, right? And it's, it's a relief, but it's also an amazing achievement. So I'm definitely, thank you so much and super chuffed and I uh, couldn't even put it into words really lost all words for a change <laughs> yeah that's I'm gonna take note of that 14th of July Jade lost for words um uh, anyway um but yeah huge well done and I know we have an episode that covers your PhD topic so promoting appearance acceptance in primary schools but I'd really like to ask you a couple of questions about your PhD at the end of this episode what do you say I would love to. Yes, please. And yeah, that just would be a great opportunity. So thank you so much. And what is the other announcement? You said there was another one. Oh, yeah. And this is a good one, Jade. Come on. We are recording this in person for the first time. (laughs) I know for the first time since February 2020, which is wild. I can prod you if I want to. (laughs) Yeah, please please don't, but thanks. <laughs> okay, fine. Um, but to our listeners, if you're wondering why we sound a little more giddy than usual, that's why. Very excited to be together. Yeah, it's been a long time coming, but yeah, absolutely thrilled to be back together in person. And on that note, I think we should get started in the episode. 
Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Jade. So first up, I speak with Dr. Hannah Saunders, Director of Studies in Law at Sydney Sussex College, Cambridge. Her research focuses on the topics of disfigurement and appearance law, and so is a truly perfect guest for this episode. Hannah talks to me about how equality law applies to visible difference and why the law currently categorises disfigurement as a disability. And then we got into her evaluation of the current law and how she thinks it can be improved. Honestly, it sounds fascinating. And so when you say equality law, are we talking about the Equality Act? Yes. So in the UK context, the Equality Act is really relevant. I won't go into detail because Hannah talks about it and I'm obviously not a lawyer or a specialist in the law and I don't want to blunder my way through. Um, But I was looking at the Equality Act website and it states that it aims to reduce social economic inequalities. And essentially, its role is to prohibit discrimination and harassment related to certain personal characteristics referred to as protected characteristics. Specifically, the Equality Act covers age, disability, gender reassignment, marriage and civil partnership, pregnancy and maternity, race, religion or belief, sex and sexual orientation. Yeah, great. It's really good to have the full list. Thanks, Nadia. And I think it's interesting because this episode specifically is focusing on visible difference. And um, there are other aspects and areas of appearance, like, for example, weight and more specifically, like higher weight, which aren't necessarily included. They aren't included under the Equalities Act, but that's a whole other episode in itself. So we're not going to get into that now. We're focusing on visible differences in this episode specifically. Yeah, exactly. And as you say, an episode in its own right. Shall we hear from Hannah? Let's get straight in. Hannah, welcome to Appearance Matters, the podcast. Thank you very much. I'm so excited to to speak with you. I heard you give a presentation at our research centre about six months ago now, I think, and have been thinking about some of the things that you have said ever since and just really excited to be able to share share some of your wisdom and insights on the podcast. So before we talk about your work, it would be great to hear a little bit more about you and your background and how you got into specialising in disability and disfigurement equality law. Thank you, Nadia. So I started life many years ago now um, as a practising lawyer before deciding that actually I wanted to teach instead. Um, and I moved into university lecturing and, and I still still love it. But it was actually when someone that I knew was affected by a visible difference that I started to look at this particular bit of the law. And what I found was that although many people with a visible difference reported experiences of, of bad treatment in various walks of life, there'd actually been very few reported legal cases about it. So the scope of the problem seemed to be out of kilter with the law's Mm -hmm. response to it. And that sort of became lodged in my head, really, as something important, but that didn't quite add up. Um, Because I'd come to university lecturing through a slightly different path, I hadn't done a PhD before. And and this was what led me to that, really. So I, I did a PhD about whether people with a visible difference, had effective workplace rights under equality law. I was lucky enough to to get a scholarship, which enabled me to do it. And it all went from there, really. 
That's fantastic. And the scholarship is so well-deserved. I think this is a really great example of that idea of luck is when preparation meets opportunity. Um, And so I'm curious because you used the phrase visible difference, which we talk a lot about on this podcast, but I think it'll be useful if you give an explanation of what you mean by visible difference as it applies to your work. Hmm. Yeah, I think this question of terminology is such an important one. The law actually doesn't use the phrase visible difference. Mm -hmm. It instead uses the phrase severe disfigurement. But I knew when I started my research that some charities and people in this community preferred instead to talk about visible difference. And that's why I used that that language in my research. And I I, I defined it as any condition or injury which alters Mm -hmm. appearance. But to be honest, the terminology of visible difference actually hasn't been straightforward because I think not everyone interprets that phrase in the same way. Um, While some people seem to use it as a synonym for this wording of disfigurement, other people seem to use it in a broader sense to distinguish between visible differences and invisible differences. And in that wider sense, a visible difference could mean any impairment that you can see by looking at someone. So for example, somebody who's broken their leg and is and is limping could in that sense have a visible difference. So, so those m- nuances of meaning, I think, can be quite confusing. Um, so I think going forward, there probably needs to be an open discussion about the language of appearance. We need to find a way forward that obviously allows every affected person to use whatever terminology they feel comfortable with personally. But at the same time, we need legal terminology, which is clear, but which is also acceptable to the to the people who might want to use it. Right. I completely agree. And I'm, I'm really glad that we've been able to get into that because language is so important. And I think what you've highlighted as well is the complexities and nuances with language and people take away different meanings from different terms. And it also evolves, right, in terms of what feels like the most appropriate term to use. But then that's the added complication I, I see from this is then with legal terminology, you kind of almost want it to be a little bit more mm-hmm. fixed. So um, yeah, something really interesting to, to think about. So I wonder now if you could give us an overview of how equality law applies to visible difference. Yeah, absolutely. Just before I do, I should mm-hmm. mention Although we can discuss general principles here, we obviously can't cover every nuance or specific in the law. So if there's anybody listening to this that thinks that rights under equality law might potentially be relevant for them personally, they should absolutely seek independent legal advice before taking any steps. So the the starting point, really, in terms of understanding equality law is something called the Equality Act of 2010, which you may well have heard of. This is the Act of Parliament that makes discrimination at work unlawful. But it's probably worth also clarifying what we mean by this word discrimination. So we make judgments and choices between people um, on a regular basis. And it only becomes unlawful when those choices or behaviours are influenced by particular factors such as sex, race, age, disability, religion, etc. The factors on that list are called protected characteristics. 
and they set the dividing line between lawful choices and behaviours and unlawful discrimination. So let me give you a very basic example of of a recruitment context. Let's say you interviewed two applicants and you choose person A instead of person B. That's probably okay if your decision is based on something neutral like their skills, but it would usually be unlawful discrimination to choose person A because person B happened to be older, say, or happened to be disabled or had another protected characteristic. So it's it's that dividing line. Now, we're not alone in the UK in having a list of protected characteristics. There's a lot of countries around the world that will have similar lists. But what's on those lists can vary from place to place. So, for example, in France and in some states in America, it's unlawful to discriminate on the basis of someone's appearance. And that can include things like their height, their hair colour, their clothing choices, as well as whether or not they have a a visible difference. In the UK, unfortunately, appearance is not on our list of protected characteristics. Our list has grown up over the years, often as a result of changes that came out of the EU, but it's never embraced appearance. However, what we do have in the UK is a law that says that severe disfigurement is a type of disability and disability is a protected characteristic. So provided that the condition lasts long enough and and fits some other criteria, the act prohibits discrimination against someone with a severe disfigurement as a disabled person. And once that threshold for qualification has been met, that person would then have rights under equality law. That includes the right not to be treated less favorably by the employer because of disability, the right to have reasonable adjustments made to avoid certain disadvantages in the workplace, and so on. Right, that's so helpful. And thank you for making that so accessible and easy to follow. But I guess I'm curious in terms of why the law categorises disfigurement as a disability. Mm, Yeah, I think in some ways that link between disability and disfigurement in the law is a bit strained. Mm -hmm. The, The Act's main definition of disability relates to function. So it looks at an impairment and it asks what negative impact that impairment has on the person's ability to carry out normal day-to-day activities. Now, a disfigurement, on the other hand, may not have any negative impact on someone's ability to carry out particular activities. But I think that link between disability and disfigurement is probably best explained using models of disability, which which I'm going to borrow for a moment from from disability rights activism. So a number of years ago, the disability rights movement distinguished between two models or concepts of disability, known as the medical model or the social model. The medical model is is the, the, the concept adopted largely by the Equality Act. It's the assumption that someone is disabled by their body and what they can't do. Under the medical model of disability, somebody with a mobility impairment, for example, would be seen as disabled by the fact that they can't walk and they can't climb stairs. The social model, however, is much more progressive. It locates disability within society. 
So that person with the mobility impairment is instead disabled by a society in which buildings and spaces are built not to be wheelchair accessible. And obviously the social barriers that can disable people are many and varied. It could be stereotypes and attitudes or the structures of medical and social systems. It's not just about physical accessibility. There are lots of different types of social barriers. So under the social model, coming back to dis disfigurement, disfigurement can be disabling because of the negative stereotypes and attitudes to somebody who looks different. And, and I think perhaps that explains its link with disability in the Equality Act. For, for me, it's just a shame that the Act doesn't also recognise a social model approach in the way it tackles other types of disability. Right, I completely agree. And I think it's so useful to, to think about it in those terms. So I think this is a really good segue to, to talk more about your work and what you've been doing. And so you spoke earlier about wanting to find out whether the law in this area is working effectively. So doing a good job, which seems like a huge undertaking. So I wonder if you could tell me how you went about assessing that. Thank you. Yeah. So I was interested in looking beyond what the law says on the page and thinking really about its effects. And for me, that stemmed from that mismatch that I mentioned earlier. The fact that although lots of surveys reported negative behaviours towards someone with a visible difference, the number of reported claims under the severe disfigurement provision in the Act was actually very low. So effectiveness was really about looking at whether the law was providing an adequate route to combat this type of discrimination. And obviously, if not, then, then the obvious question is, well, how can we do that better? So I started looking at the law itself and asking myself questions like, hmm, is the law clear? When I read that on a page, can I tell you who would, who would be covered and who wouldn't be covered? And is it broad enough to give rights to everybody who needs them? And this initial work, it, it did flag up some areas of concern for me. But, but the second stage was to try and understand the experience of the law from the perspective of people with a visible difference. Because I think having a legal right is one thing, but actually wanting and feeling willing to use it can be very different. And that second stage opened up lots of different issues for me. So things like, did people know about their rights and was there enough information that they could clearly find out about them? Would they feel able to put in the time and cost and, and potentially the stress of a legal process to, to, to use their rights? Were they comfortable with the wording of the act with disfigurement and disability and, and so on that was in the law? So, so I guess effective equality covers a lot of things, really. But in a nutshell, it's about results rather than just process and about whether the law is, is working for, for real people in real life. Right. Yeah. The, what's the application? So what did you conclude? Is it is the, is the law currently working? A million dollar question. Mm -hmm. um, exactly. Well, let's, be <laughs> let's begin with a positive. I think having the severe disfigurement provision in the law at all is, is a big step forward. Mm -hmm. But in my view, no, it's not really working as well as it should do. And I think that's that's for two reasons. It's, it's partly due to problems with the way the Act is drafted. And it's partly due to the way that it interacts with people's lives and experiences. 
So in terms of the drafting, my first concern would be that the law is just too narrow. So if your disfigurement is not severe, the Equality Act doesn't protect you from discrimination. Now that seems to assume that the worse the disfigurement, the worse the discrimination and distress you're likely to suffer. But actually we know from research that that is not the case. There isn't a sort of directly proportional relationship. People with mild and and moderate disfigurements may also be at risk of discrimination, but not get the legal right to challenge it. So narrowness of the law, I think, is a problem. I also think clarity of the law is a problem. We know that things like scars and birthmarks are likely to qualify as a disfigurement provided they're severe and and, and meet various criteria. But it isn't clear how far the protection extends beyond that. So what about alopecia, for example? or conditions which can cause involuntary facial expressions like Tourette's syndrome or synkinesis, or or being very much shorter than than average. So I think there's a challenge in understanding which conditions are likely to be covered. And of course, if some are often covered and others not, then we have to ask ourselves why. I also think that the, the law's drafting is too inflexible. The law has sort of created a distinction between disfigurement on the one hand and functional impairment on the other. But that doesn't reflect the lived experience of people with with complex conditions, by by which I mean um, conditions which might include a degree of both functional and aesthetic impairment, perhaps such as cleft lip, for example. So by treating those two types of conditions differently, the law maybe makes it harder for combinations of impairments to be properly recognised and protected in that way. The other problem that I've identified is how law relates to to real life. So looking at it from the perspective of the people who might want to use it. And a particular issue that I found here was self-identity. And we're back to this issue of the terminology of disability. A lot of the people that I spoke to in my study did not choose to describe their visible difference as a disability. Some preferred the term health condition or or difference. Now, that reluctance to self-identify as disabled could deter people from using legal rights, which which do use that, that particular category. I think for many of us, real lives aren't always as easily categorized as, as the law might, might, might wish. In addition, lots of participants were worried about the, the process of, of enforcing legal rights. So they had concerns ranging from, how much is that gonna cost me to, to go to court and, and challenge what's happened to me? To, is it gonna make things worse? Am I gonna get victimized? Will I ever get another job? And how can I prove what somebody said to me or, or what's happened um, to, do I really want to disclose all my personal private medical details and things in public? Um, So I think probably the legal system underestimates the strain of of enforcing rights and that it puts on the individual. So that was a very long answer, but where I'm coming to is that for a whole load of reasons, Nadia, no, I don't think the law is working as well as it should. 
So there's so much in there and I'm thinking of so many different <laughs> um, possibilities and, and just trying to think more and process some of the complexities in there. Um, it's very interesting that we come back to this idea of language and the um, how people self-identify and how important that is. And oh, there's, there's a lot, but um, I don't want this episode to, to be hours and hours long. So it might have to be that we bring you back for another time. But I want to go from one million dollar question to another. How do you think the law could be improved? Hmm. If I had a magic wand, there are some amazing changes we could make that I think would have huge potential. And and probably the the, the biggest is that I'd like Parliament to recognise appearance itself as a protected characteristic to add to that list that we, we, we discussed earlier. That's a much wider category than severe disfigurement. So it might also help people with obesity or people with mild and moderate disfigurements as well. However, I'm afraid I'm a born pragmatist. And as that I think is unlikely to happen overnight, shall we say, there are also some small changes which I think could make a difference. For example, one easy improvement is is to create more guidance on what severe disfigurement means to help people understand whether the law protects them. And I'd also like to see better resources for employers who are are maybe keen to support their staff with a visible difference, but unsure how to do it and perhaps worried about getting it wrong. Um, And actually, I'm hoping to tackle both of those small aspects in in a future research project. I also think that some non legal changes like seeing more people with an appearance difference on TV in positive roles and roles which are not all about visible difference could really help to break down stereotypes and and, and make a big difference too. Yeah, completely. I think it's something that we speak about a lot on the podcast and and at the centre about how important positive representation is. And there's also lots of evidence behind that as well. Um, You said that you wanted to see more guidance for employers on how to support their staff with a visible difference. What kind of guidance for employers do you mean? How do you envisage that looking like? Hmm. Well, in the interviews that I conducted, there were, I think, two workplace contexts in particular in which visible difference seemed to be a bigger concern for the people involved. Now, the first of these was recruitment. And I suppose that's that's probably not surprising, to be honest, Mm -hmm. because for most of us, I think going through a job application process is, well, it's not very nice. It's not comfortable. You're put on the spot. You feel judged. But for a number of people that I spoke to, as well as all of those concerns, they also had worries about whether their appearance would count against them and, and whether they should say anything about their appearance. And particular recruitment processes caused real additional stress for some people. So having to submit a video of yourself, for example, as part of the recruitment process could be a real hurdle for some people. And in some cases that might actually put them off applying for the role in the first place. Now I'm I'm no expert on, on recruitment techniques, but anecdotally, a number of my students have told me that when they've applied to a particular company for a job, the first stage of that process has been to complete a video interview, which is where they are asked computer-generated questions with their answers being being videoed at the same time on on this kind of software package. So I think 
just getting employers to think about the impact of these kind of recruitment processes on real people could help produce a much more level playing field. And I suppose the second area where I think I'd like to see more guidance is, is to do with adjusting job duties and requirements. So a lot of participants in my study felt that adjustments at work couldn't be made for looking different. But then when we talked about it, actually many of them were able to identify small aspects of their roles, which they found harder due to having a visible difference and small adjustments, which would have helped them to deal with that. So by way of example, some participants would have appreciated perhaps a minor dress code modification to make them more comfortable about a particular aspect of their condition. Others would have appreciated support with maybe public speaking or networking if that was something that that they felt less confident with. And some would have maybe wanted to avoid having to have a photo on a web profile or or on an email header or maybe even to to bring one from home um, rather than that awful taking a photo and reception experience that we we often have, don't we? Um, Now, obviously, every person and every job is different. And not everyone will be entitled to or would even want reasonable adjustments. But I do think it's important to get some guidance out there so that employers and employees can have informed discussions about what's what's right for a particular person. Yeah, I think that's that would be so helpful. And I think just overall, Hannah, you've given us so much to think about. And I want to thank you again for explaining everything in such an accessible way. As I was saying before, sometimes when it's law and there's it kind of feels overwhelming and 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 overly complicated but you've made it really easy to to follow and as I say have just given me I for myself personally so much to to think about on on these topics so thank you so much um but before I can let you go we have a very important final question you may have heard it before if you've listened to, to previous episodes so we have a cake and coffee morning and the Big question is, what cake would you bring? And so what's your favourite cake? Oh, what's a great question. Um, not an easy question because I love no. putting every type of available cake. Um, but yeah, you probably can't beat a good coffee and walnut for me. Oh, sounds, sounds good. And I don't think we've had an offering of one of those for a while. <laughs> so I think it'll be well received. So Hannah, thank you so much again for joining us on appearance matters the podcast it's been an absolute delight speaking with you thank you Nadia and and thanks for inviting me that was brilliant and also as you said Nadia Hannah makes law just so accessible I know I felt like I kept saying it during the interview but it's so true and I just felt like I learned so much and have so much to go on to think about Same. And I thought the last section on guidance for employers was also really interesting. I thought you might. And (laughs) what a perfect segue to hearing a little bit more about your PhD and the guidance you've created for schools in relation to appearance diversity. Yeah, as I said at the beginning of this episode, I'm so excited to be able to discuss a little bit of this PhD research. Seems fitting, having just submitted. Um, (laughs) So this research is also funded by the Vocational Training Charitable Trust Foundation. So thank you to them for making this possible. Um, Just, yeah, like I say, to get into it briefly, 
what happened was I interviewed 10 primary school teachers, um, all of which were female, which um, is a limitation in itself, but we won't get into that too much. Um, and I wanted to know what their experiences and perceptions about promoting acceptance of diverse appearances in primary school children. So in the UK, that's children aged four to 11 years old. Mm -hmm. I wanted to kind of get an idea from them. So like you're talking about in terms of what can educators do in this context to be, be able to promote acceptance. Um, and I think when, I, when we talk about appearance diversity in this context, and just to describe a little bit, when we say appearance diversity, what we're talking about is not conforming to appearance ideals in society, things like being white, thin, able-bodied, having no visible difference, things like Hannah discussed there, um, those which are protected characteristics and also um, non-protected characteristics such as weight and some visible differences which might fluctuate and not necessarily come under disability. So it's a more broader term. And the reason why this research links so well to the topic of law um, and why I found it so interesting is that there is some general government reports and curriculum guidance within the education system, which outlines that schools are required to promote what we call positive action. Now, I've got a little quote here from the Department of Education in 2020 and how they outline the way that schools should do this. So they say, schools should be alive to issues such as everyday sexism, misogyny, homophobia, and gender stereotypes and take positive action to build a culture where these are not tolerated and any occurrences are identified and tackled. So that's what they state. And it's really great they state this and that these curriculum guidance are moving forward. However, there are still no specific steps or specific guidance on ways that teachers and educators can do this and embody this within their teaching and their education. And secondly, the, the Equalities Act doesn't consider always that parents can be diverse, as we said about weight. So it's really important to, to hear from the teachers, like we did in this research firsthand, about how schools can implement the promotion of, of positive acceptance of a diversity of all appearances in schools and this is really important because young children's attitudes as we discussed in a previous episode about the promoting it in primary schools can develop their negative attitudes can develop quite early especially towards higher weight so just to quickly without going off on a tangent too much and I know I've talked a bit more than I expected now already <laughs> classic um but I think, yeah, it will help allow for a deeper understanding of ways that interventions and other future research can look to providing potential support in policy mm. within education. And teachers need this guidance within education. So it's, it's, it's vital, really. Yeah, completely agree, Jade. So can you give us a snippet of what you found from interviewing the teachers? Yeah, just a little, little spoiler. Um, uh, just some really important finding that we found. And this actually highlights quite well the disparity between the fact that education in the UK government is saying you need to promote positive action, but mm -hmm. they're not telling them how. Now, mm -hmm. what's happening is teachers are being, they're becoming very anxious about discussing or promoting appearance diversity in education. Um, so what that tends to happen is they get so concerned about saying the wrong thing, 
using the wrong language, sending the wrong message, that they tend to go into avoidance because they think, well, it might be easier if I don't talk about it because I don't want to do it, do it not justice or do it mm-hmm. wrong. And as we know, avoidance and skirting around a topic can lead to more stigma. So, you know, what one teacher would say is there are children in the school that are scared to say the word black because they're scared that they're going to offend someone and the teachers are concerned about how they broach that topic with the children and if they're worried and not you know presenting the role models of people who are showing that acceptance of all appearances are important because they're worried about doing it wrong then what does that mean that means that potentially the like the government and more policy is needed to help give them more confidence and support in this area because clearly they've said already that it's an important topic and we need to do it justice but teachers don't know how so there's a real gap here Mm. in disparity of yeah what teachers want to do and what teachers feel they can do and that's an important finding and that is why well I'm just going to lead to final point here Mm-hmm. The research created, my PhD research created a, a support guide for primary school teachers um, to help them with the language and just getting to grips with the topic area and acknowledging it's important, but giving them the confidence to feel that they they can read this if they need that support to, to broach it with teachers and other, other children and make the conversations there because they need to be had. And if teachers are worried about it, then they need the support. That's that's the honest truth. So that's freely available. We'll link it in the show notes. So <laughs> not usually when you you ask people questions that that they say they'll link it in the show notes. <laughs> I know. I was I was just about to butt in and say, where can we find it? Can we link it in the show notes? But there we go. You've you've done it. You've done yeah, it. Yeah. No. So it's freely accessible. It's it's seven pages long. It links to some references and other resources. Um, and put it in and. It's yeah, teachers say things need to be brief and free. So we made it brief and free, hopefully. So please do access that if you are interested. And if you know someone who's an educator and, and would like that support, it's it's there for you to take it as you will. Thank you so much, Jade, for sharing that. It was so good. I'm so glad we were able to discuss that at the, the end of this episode. It's been really, really interesting to hear what you found. And there is that resource available. And as you say, it's it's free. People can get it straight from listening to this episode so really really brilliant work thank you so much as well okay fantastic what an episode I hope you've all enjoyed listening to it as much as I have thank you Jade for your your PhD snippet and thank you to Hannah also for joining us thank you Nadia and also yeah thank you Hannah so I think we should wrap up yeah I think let's Thank you so much for listening to Appearance Matters, the podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do remember to share, subscribe, rate and review. It helps other people find the podcast and it gives us a little boost. It really does. And remember, you can keep up to date with our centre's work on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. All the links are in the bio. Okay, until next time. Bye. Bye.